This episode is sponsored by EY. Money is changing, both in form and function. Money Reimagined is about the changing nature of money, digital currencies, and various topics related to finance, blockchain technology, artificial intelligence, and more. Michael Casey and Sheila Warren walk us through the dynamic and evolving nature of the global economy and the implications for businesses, governments, and individuals as they must adapt to new payment methods and technologies. Welcome to Money Reimagined. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey coming to you over the Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Here amid the 10-year anniversary of Coindesk, a very exciting period for us this time. Looking back, we were in the middle of this historic, this opportunity to look back at uh, where this industry has gone, where the crypto industry has gone over the past decade and Coindesk covering that. We've just come out of consensus, of course, many would know that. And so there's a, a real sense of like moment here. And and Sheila, my co-host Sheila Warren, joining us as always, of course, or nearly as always, you know, the topic of, of the environmental concerns, the whole never-ending discussion, debate, polemic over Bitcoin and its carbon footprint and so forth is one of those things that I think if you look back over 10 years of Coindesk coverage, you would you would see it pop up quite a bit. And I'm thrilled today that we've got Troy Cross joining us, who I think of as the great philosopher of this issue and is able to is to put these things in context and I think hopefully help us try to understand how we can, I don't know, shift the narrative around this because I feel like it's a broken one. Uh, we've had a number of conversations on this podcast about it and I still feel like every time I sit down with a normie to talk about Bitcoin and the environment, it gets kind of captured in all sorts of constrained, difficult conversations. Yeah, look, I think one thing I'm really eager to dive into uh, today is just thinking through the culture uh, that's developed around the different kind of segments within uh, the broader industry, digital assets, if you even want to call it that, and kind of the different ways that's manifested uh, culturally and how that links back to the core philosophies that underlie some of the different industry segments, uh, whether it's NFTs and Bitcoin, like all these different things. I'm and I agree. I mean, I think we have exactly the right person on uh, to chat with us about that today. So really excited to get into the conversation. Okay, so let's get Troy in here. Uh, Troy, I think one would be really be useful is for you to give us a little bit of your bio and background because I've heard you talk about it before and how you came to this. Because I think, like, I mean, you are an environmentalist, correct? Correct. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on, and thank you for that kind introduction. Yes, I I am an environmentalist. In 2011, you're, you're celebrating your 10-year anniversary. It's like the 12-year anniversary of me as a Bitcoiner. In 2011, yeah, wow. spring, I discovered Bitcoin. And at that time, there was no Coindesk. There was the white paper and there was the Bitcoin Talk Forum. And that was my entry into, into Bitcoin. And I was fascinated with it as an ethical money, as a step forward in, in technology, but also really as a way to fix uh, what I saw as injustices that I became deeply concerned with and 2008 and following the banking crisis. So I started mining Bitcoin in my own home, first of all, on all my laptops. And then I built some machines using graphics cards. We were still in a graphics card pre-ASIC era. Uh, in my basement, I'm here at Reed College right now, and I was renting a home from Reed and they paid my electricity bill, actually. And I started feeling yeah. guilty after a month or two of running right. these machines on their power and making money out of electricity for using their electricity. 
But also I did some back of napkin calculations on how much energy Bitcoin mining would incentivize at a 50 Bitcoin per block block subsidy, which was the original uh, block subsidy. Now it's 6.25 Bitcoin per, per 10 minutes. Then it was 50. It halves every four years and we're about a year out from the next halving. If Bitcoin's market cap were to equal the market cap of gold, which I, I thought was ridiculous, but it's what people were talking about. And I thought, well, if this technology succeeds, it should replace gold uh, or equal gold in its size anyway, something I still think. If it succeeds, it should be digital gold. And so what would its energy use be if at that point, very little of the 21 million had been mined? And so a large percentage of Bitcoin were being mined uh, day by day. And that number I reached, I don't have still my math, but it was astronomical. And it matched something like you know the World Economic Forum and, and Newsweek put out in 2017 saying that by 2020, Bitcoin would use all of the world's electricity. Like They were six years after my calculation. My calculation was even more severe. I stopped mining. I gave away my, my mining machines. Out of out of concern for what you thought you were contributing to, or what was the? Yeah, I yeah. I didn't think I was using a significant amount of electricity, but I mean I also didn't own a car and I biked everywhere in town. I live in Portland, you know, it just didn't fit my my ethos. Yeah, yeah. But I, it's a basic kind of Kantian point. I thought philosophically I shouldn't participate in doing something which, if it were adopted as a rule, would be disastrous. You know, if everybody acted by the same rule right. that I was acting by, it would be disastrous. Right. And so I Very had kind. to uh, I had to opt out. At the same time, I remain fascinated with Bitcoin as a tool of resistance and as an innovation, as something that could disintermediate a corrupt system. And so I, I had make very mixed feelings about it. I actually wasn't sure whether the trade-off was worth it or how fast it would grow and whether it would become an environmental disaster or whether it would stand or wraps. And it really wasn't until about two and a half years ago that I started diving deeply into the issue and realizing that it's, it's far more complex. Bitcoin's impact on the environment is far more complex than meets the eye. It could, under certain scenarios, be a benefit to the environment, I believe. Not all scenarios, but some of them. And also, I came up with an idea, which I wrote up with my friend and, and fellow philosopher, Andrew Bailey, who teaches at Yale NUS, about how to uh, hold Bitcoin in a carbon-neutral way, which I think, uh, as much as I'm weighing in on the, uh, the debate about Bitcoin's impact on the environment, I also think and this was the subject of my talk at Consensus, that there's a way of avoiding the conversation entirely. There's a way of using Bitcoin and participating in the network where you have no negative impact on the environment yourself. And hmm. that means you don't have to figure out whether Bitcoin is good or bad for the environment or how good or how bad it is in order to participate in the network and opt out of the money system to whatever degree you're comfortable with or provide a check on the money system. Yeah, I mean, maybe walk through that a little bit. But certainly, I didn't get a chance to hear you talk, unfortunately, because I was busy sure. on main stage. And I'm sure lots of people, lots of our listeners didn't necessarily either. How, I mean, do, how do we do this? Here's the basic idea. Uh, first of all, understand how your holding Bitcoin creates carbon emissions indirectly. I, a lot of people are confused about this. When I stopped mining Bitcoin, I held on to some Bitcoin. I spent a lot uh, notoriously on uh, alpaca socks from a New Hampshire alpaca farmer. And I spent on all of my travel expenses through Expedia. I bought home goods through um, overstock.com. Uh, I, I, I tipped people. I made donations to groups. But I held on to some Bitcoin. And I realized that even though I had stopped mining, just by holding, I was having an impact on the environment. And the reason was because my holding kept the price of Bitcoin higher than it would otherwise be. And miners around the world 
are mining in pursuit of the block reward, which is denominated in Bitcoin. That's at 6.25 Bitcoins per every 10 minute block subsidy plus fees, which at the time I gave the talk were like three, four percent, but are now approaching 50 percent of the Bitcoin income because of uh, people using Taproot in interesting ways. But it's all denominated in Bitcoin. And if you sell your Bitcoin, then you will depress the price of Bitcoin. If everybody sold their Bitcoin, Bitcoin would be worth nothing. And then nobody would mine. So all mining is happening in pursuit of that Bitcoin reward. And so it's the holders of Bitcoin that are keeping Bitcoin's price from being lower than it is. And so they have a carbon footprint. And that's what I was thinking. I mean, the reason I came to this insight was just because I it was my conscience. I realized that my holding Bitcoin still had a carbon footprint, even though I wasn't mining. And when I figured out what my carbon footprint was, the obvious calculation was to look at the total carbon footprint of Bitcoin mining worldwide, which is about, just to put things in perspective, it's about one thousandth right now of all carbon emissions. One thousandth is not the biggest threat to our climate and it is not the end of the world. It's one thousandth. It's substantial, but it is tiny compared to things like tobacco. Uh, but anyway, your carbon footprint as a holder of Bitcoin is your percentage of all Bitcoin times the total carbon footprint of Bitcoin. So if you have 1% of all Bitcoin, you're responsible for 1% of the total emissions of Bitcoin over the period that you hold it. So that's the first component. What is your carbon footprint? The second component is that I think the innovation. And this was an idea that got me super excited and brought me public. I was completely private as a Bitcoiner until I had this idea and wanted to bring it and give it away, which I am still trying to do. The idea is when you mine Bitcoin, you disincentivize other miners to mine Bitcoin. Because when you mine Bitcoin, you add to the hash rate of the Bitcoin network. When you add to the hash rate, the blocks will be found sooner than 10 minutes. And the way the Bitcoin difficulty adjustment algorithm works is every 2016 blocks, it checks to see that whether block times are above or below 10 minutes. And if they're below 10 minutes, it increases the difficulty uh, to find a block. So what happens when you mine is that you make the block times faster, difficulty adjustment goes up, and every other miner in the world suffers. They have to spend more computing power to get the same reward. Mm -hmm. So I realized we have a way to hurt miners, which is to mine. And we also have a way to, to help miners, which is to hold Bitcoin, buy and hold Bitcoin. And if these two, the helping and the hurting, are put into equilibrium, it's like you don't have any effect at all on other miners at all. You're not giving them any incentive to mine because you're giving them a positive incentive by buying and holding, and you're giving them a negative incentive by mining against them and driving up difficulty. So your only carbon footprint would be your own, uh, whatever the carbon footprint is from doing your own mining. And if you mine in a way that's itself green, let's say you're mining with excess power on a solar plant, or you're mining uh, as a baseload nuclear, or in some way that has no, as a negligible carbon impact itself, then since you have a negligible carbon impact from your own mining, and no other miner is being incentivized by your activity, which is a, a compound of mining and holding, uh, you have negligible carbon impact yourself, and yet you hold Bitcoin, and that's regular old fungible Bitcoin. And I call this mining your share. So the prescription is do your share of mining. And that's kind of what I've been working on. 
Are you looking to fast-track your enterprise growth? With tools and solutions from EY, you could run your essential business applications, including private transactions and zero-knowledge applications, on public Ethereum. From supply chain to procurement to sustainability, EY Blockchain's APIs and zero-knowledge tools make public Ethereum accessible to all enterprise users. Find out why some of the world's leading companies are building on Ethereum with EY. Visit us at blockchain.ey.com. So I'd be remiss if I didn't say it's a bit convenient, right? So because the choices would seem to be, I mean, certainly it seems to be, if I'm paraphrasing what you're saying, there is an optimal way of engaging in the Bitcoin network and community such that you are neutralizing and basically evening out, you know, the environmental impact. But of course, there's also an option which is not engaging with it in any way at all. Uh, Where does that fit into your calculus? Just completely opting out of it completely altogether. Okay. I would say completely opting out of it will have the same effect on emissions as doing my thing. Virtually the same effect. Now, there's another option, which is you don't buy any and you only mine. And you only mine in a green way, but you don't hold any. Now, that option will be carbon negative, thinking marginally, because... Uh, and I have told this to the U.S. government because you're making other miners' life hard, but you're also not offering them any positive incentive. So you're only offering other miners a negative incentive, and that's better than opting out. Th- this is what I wish policymakers understood. Hmm. Uh, right now, we're looking at a 30% tax, for instance, uh, proposed by the Biden administration, indiscriminate. It's whether the energy is coming from waste methane that is actually a warming gas, and you're using that energy or whether it's coming from excess solar, doesn't matter. They're taxing it all the same, or that's the proposal. It's idiocy. If they mined at a loss of a billion per year, uh, they would make mining unprofitable for anybody else in the world uh, because mining is a very low margin business. It doesn't take a lot to push everybody under. If they made mining uh, unprofitable for everybody, they would eliminate the emissions without any regulation, without any banning, et cetera. So now take that idea and fractionalize it, and that's my idea. Like imagine... (laughs) You did your part of a good government policy, what you think a good government policy would be, like subsidizing mining, driving out the kind of mining that's polluting and pushing more of the network onto environmentally friendly methods. You don't have to wait on a government to do that. You could do that yourself as an individual holder. That's the idea. So it's really interesting because, of course, I think we're all coming from the presumption, which I think is accurate, just to be clear, that uh, Bitcoin is going to be mined somewhere. And I do think there are folks in various governments who persist in believing that they can stop this activity from happening altogether. And so there, I think, might be the miss in the policy proposal, right, is this idea that by banning it, somehow it doesn't, I don't know, it's a bit of an ostrich scenario, but it just doesn't happen as opposed to what we know actually happens when it's banned, which is it goes to places that use dirtier, more expensive, et cetera, energy. But, but it's kind of more than that, right? It's not just going to always be mine. And therefore, it's like all you're doing is just pushing you know, the water to another place. It's also this sort of perfect market adjustment that, that I think, you know, I've always I looked at Bitcoin. It's like, there's really no other market in the world that has that automatic reduction. As, as, as Troy mm-hmm. says, like once the difficulty rate goes up, once the cost of actually earning this thing, then it, it just sends people to stop doing it in a way that you don't see in so many other industries, right? That is what becomes counterintuitive for people. That what what do you mean? The US would spend money to mine and that would actually hurt the system, right? Yeah. Yeah. The incentives are built in. Yes. That lack of understanding to me is the core problem here. Like people cannot look at this market and see it as an economic phenomenon. That is the difficulty that people see. They see it as like an activity that does X, uses energy. They don't see it as a very unique economic activity 
that has this sort of collective behavior that is price driven in ways that so few other markets are. It's unique in in so many ways. One is the the, the limited supply, and that's what my idea makes use of. It's like imagine there was uh, a, a deposit of gold at the center of the earth, and there was only one deposit of gold, and it just emitted a certain amount of gold every day, total. That was it, and you couldn't change that. All you could change is like which and each nation like has miners that drill down to that same deposit. And let's just suppose that the amount they get is proportional to the size of the straw that they drill down with. That's the picture of Bitcoin mining. And what happens when you cut off one of those straws is just that everybody else gets more. There's <laughs> the same amount is emitted precisely as was before. So people can't picture that because it's never existed. We've never had anything prior to Bitcoin that was digitally restricted and perfectly specified in its emission. But also Bitcoin has other unique features. Every machine around the world works in the same at the same rate, turns energy into Bitcoin. So and it's a perfectly fungible good. Every Bitcoin's like every other Bitcoin. And it's instantly transmissible over the internet for free. So there are no transportation costs. So if you look at basically the economics textbook definition of a perfect market, this is really, really close to a perfect market. There's no barrier to entry. Yeah. I mean, you have to yeah. source the machines. The only thing that really keeps it from being perfect is the distribution of energy around the world. Where is their cheap energy? Energy is like 70% of the input cost for mining. So you would predict, just looking at this thing from the armchair like a philosopher would, that Bitcoin mining will seek out by far the cheapest energy in the world. It's also you know location agnostic, time agnostic, and highly interruptible and attenuable. You would predict just looking at those features that given that it's a perfect market, uh, you're going to have people keep entering the market until it doesn't make sense to do so. So the margins are going to go to nothing over over time. It's a stupid business to go into. <laughs> I mean, it really is. You know <laughs> yes. what I mean? It's like- You know, it's this is so interesting. Okay. So talking about economic models, I remember I, did, I, I participated in this seminar when I was in college at Harvard, and it was econometrics and, and you know, stats and other kinds of things. And and I remember just questioning the premise that people act rationally, because of course they don't act rationally. They act deeply irrationally on an extraordinarily regular basis. And if we can predict anything, it is that people will act irrationally and not in their best interest and look no further than the ways some people vote if you need evidence of that. And so anytime I hear any, as an economics, you know, we're going back a ways, but as, as a, a former economist, I don't know if that's the thing. <laughs> Every time I hear about economic models that are theoretically perfect, which I believe in, because again, I did buy into economic modeling. I always have to throw in that question, which is people don't act rationally and they don't understand this particular incentive structure to Michael's point. And they don't really you know, understand how this differs from ordinary energy usage, which is very different. And we can go into that yeah, as much as it's, it's rival. Yeah, yeah it, exactly. Right. So, so how do you account for that kind of, is there room for irrationality in your, in your model? Well, what's interesting is, okay, first of all, I love this. I love this question because I guess philosophers kind of live in this realm uh, when they think about economics and when they think about incentive structures, uh, precisely what has blown up over the past decade about failures in, in, in rationality. And what's interesting is that while individuals, of course, fail to be rational all the time and markets fail to be rational, when there's money on the line, uh, people are a lot more rational when that, than when ah. there isn't. And a lot of those studies like blow up once it's real decision-making and not just filling out a survey for undergraduates. But also over time, you see it happen. Here's what happens in Bitcoin <laughs> mining. People are crazy irrational. We saw this during the boom. Everybody bought miners. And not only did they buy miners, 
But the entire market aped into equities for mining companies as a proxy to own Bitcoin, basically. And uh, what did we see? We saw a classic boom bust, uh, massive leverage. It all blew up in their faces. And we had a series of bankruptcies. We had stock prices massively depressed in, in, in the Bitcoin mining sector. There was huge irrationality. But look at break-even prices and look at energy costs. And you will see my thesis playing out. Over time, the amount of money. What happened was China banned Bitcoin, like kind of like the White House is thinking about doing. Yep. China bans Bitcoin. It's half of all mining. What happens to all those miners? They go to the the United States yep. and Kazakhstan. Yep. Uh, Kazakhstan had cheap subsidized power, coal. And the US has, ironically, aging power infrastructure left behind by the industrial exodus to China. So you know, they came and left, <laughs> the miners came and filled the spot that were abandoned by industry fleeing to China. And that was in in Appalachia, in you know K Kentucky, Georgia, New York State, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Wyoming, even like keeping them afloat, like aging coal plants or whatever. And that power wasn't all cheap; it was just available. The problem in that crunch at that time, there was no place to plug in an ASIC, or people were looking for copper, people were looking for transformers. Those were the sticking points. Infrastructure there wasn't competition between miners because the break-even prices were astronomical because China had just cut the hash rate in half because Bitcoin's price had run from $3,000 to $69,000 virtually overnight, way too fast for an industry to build ASICs and catch up with the hash rate. So instead of being in a perfect market, we had an incredible opportunity to plug in any machine of any era in, with any power and make money hand over fist. And that's what happened. That's what shaped the entire narrative around Bitcoin energy as the Sierra Club saw uh, coal plants that were scheduled for closure suddenly staying open past their closure. They projected that out as a pattern <laughs> for the future and said, oh my God, Bitcoin's going to destroy the world. And it's the same projection from a moment in time, from a bull run, from that moment of irrationality that happened in 2017 that led the WEF and Newsweek to say what they said and, and Camilla Mora to say what he said and what Digiconomist said, mm -hmm. et cetera. In fact, what happens is the ASICs catch up. The ASIC production catches up. People come, keep entering the market. Rational or irrational, it doesn't matter. What happens is more hash rate comes on, more people are dividing the same block reward. The price of Bitcoin comes back down a little bit. And then- and then what happens? Margins are squeezed and boom, people go out of business. Who goes out of business? Who goes out of business? The people who took on the most debt and who had the poorest power pricing agreements, the people who didn't have the cheapest electricity. So what's left over? Cheaper electricity. And looking into the future, what kind of deals are people making now? Uh, they're getting like, let's say Terrawolf in the Susquehanna, they're getting two cents a kilowatt hour on nuclear power base, base load. Right. And I'm hearing about other projects also. Two, three cents a kilowatt hour in North Africa, uh, in the Middle long -term East. Long-term contracts, yeah. Long-term mm. contracts. If mm. you're paying five cents a kilowatt hour in a perfect market and other people are getting two, three cents, you're gone. Be you're gone. gone. So it's not about rationality, irrationality. You can try to mine on that stuff. People can mine on it right and now this, because it, of the, this this BRC20 quays. But like they're gonna be, and we're going into a having one more thing. Yeah, we're going. This is talk about irrationality. Can you imagine entering a perfect market where the total revenues for the entire industry cut in half in a year, and you're like, <laughs> yeah, I'm just gonna ape in and buy thousands of machines. It, it is irrational. But what happens in that aftermath of the right. having? What happens is you get the capex 
is very, very depressed because now we have an oversupply of ASICs. ASICs are not improving very fast anymore. We have an oversupply of ASICs. Most of them will not even be turned on most of the time. They'll be waiting for not two cents a kilowatt hour, free power. They'll be waiting for free power in the massive excess periods of energy production that the Inflation Reduction Act is bringing to the US. Solar and wind produce way more power than we can use at certain times of day and not others. And what's going to happen with this, the aftermath of this irrationality is the excess capex is going to sit there and soak up free power when it's available. And if your power is not free, you're at a disadvantage. <laughs> I see. So you see, like once I saw that big picture and I saw it not just theoretically, but like it has to happen un unless we get huge swings in Bitcoin's price upward. Like if Bitcoin goes to a million dollars, then just forget everything I say and delete this <laughs> podcast and I'm wrong and Troy's terrible. But like, if, bet. if the price climbs at a reasonable rate, this is what I didn't mm. see in 2011. If it climbs at a reasonable rate, then ASIC production will keep up. And that means the cost of energy will push down. And the cheapest energy in the world is leftover energy that nobody else wants, almost by design. It has a positive impact on the energy system by paying something rather than nothing for waste energy. That helps us pay for, uh, pay for uh, infrastructure that we otherwise couldn't afford. Okay, so so um, a couple of points. One, I just want to like like because I, I I was I also economics major for quite a long okay. time. Okay, well, digging deep. Of We're digging deep into the history. I will totally give it yes. No such thing as a perfect perfect market. However, what I find really interesting about Bitcoin, and is how you notice the the speed of reaction time getting shorter and shorter. Right, in the sense that like. You yeah, show the irrational behavior gets punished quicker and quicker each time. And there's actually a really good chart that I saw that, that my colleague George Kalut has pulled together one of our you know, uh, Bitcoin quarterly reports of about a year or so ago that shows the, the block time getting narrower and narrower over time. So it goes, it was 10, it would, it would oscillate from 10 to 5 to 20 to whatever back in the early days because you didn't have this sort of sudden return of, of hashing power or, or reduction of hashing power to, in response to signals that would signal that the difficulty rate was going to change. You would wait for the difficulty rates to change, but now that it preempts that more readily, right? So you see this happen, at least in terms of, you know, machines that can be turned on and off. When you get a big migration like the one you did from China to the US, that I think creates this massive sort of like lumpy behavior because it's like exactly. you've got to buy it, you've got to get the cap or you've got to do it. It's where it happens in this smooth way. It starts to get real, that, that, those Rational versus irrational speed times get narrower and narrower. And that's the only thing you can ever hope for, right? You can't have absolute perfection. You can just get to a point where it was. No, so anyway. I, I love it. And, and in fact, the way you've set this up is, is, is exactly explains to me why you would buy a miner right now. Like, why would you buy a miner? I think mining is kind of like driving for Uber. Like, anybody mm -hmm. can slap a sign on their car and do it. Like, why, why would you do it? Particularly, why would you buy an ASIC? I mean, maybe you're sitting on free mm -hmm. power and you just want to use it. But why would you buy an ASIC? You're betting on the lump. Actually, mm. what you're betting is that there will be a, a price spike in Bitcoin that will outstrip the... Right, the, uh, you're waiting for that, that, that imperfection. You're betting on the imperfection coming your way, yeah. Unfortunately, though, Troy, because uh, we could just talk about this stuff forever. One last point. Oh, yeah, one last point. Okay, let's, let's wrap this up. Yep. Yeah, yep. There's, a, there's a part of me, because I'm at the Bitcoin Policy Institute and I do talk to staffers and lawmakers and journalists, and they are all inside of a very particular, you know, rigid way of thinking about Bitcoin and its energy use. Their guard is up and they're at war. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has an anti-crypto army, apparently. There's a part of me that the Bitcoiner part of me from 2011, uh, who is completely secretive about his involvement and just yeah. hanging out on, on the forums, that's like, fine, great. You couldn't do a single better thing for Bitcoin than to do your worst policy-wise. 
ban it, ban mining, ban the use of it, ban unhosted wallets, you know, tax it like crazy. What will happen is that those the people who don't have to ask why it's valuable because they're trying to escape a collapsing peso or whatever. Those people start using it. Mining happens apace wherever it does happen in the nooks and crannies of the energy world globally in the 196 countries that are not all going to coordinate to stamp it out when they can't even agree not to go to war against each other. And then Bitcoin shows its true form, which is that it doesn't depend on policy. It is a human tool that humans will use. And yes, it would be bad for us here in the US not to have access to a tool like that. But I think it might be better for the tool. So that's my, you know, old time yeah. Bitcoin perspective. There's a lovely kind of decentralizing, forcing it everywhere, actually undermining the nation state, right? Yeah. It, it almost like it it, it almost converts it. it into this activist machine that it wouldn't be if it were uh being sort of more embraced by by the Wall establishment. Street, right? Right? The establishment pushes it away and then it actually lives out its force as a as a force for change. Uh, look, unfortunately, as always, I love these sorts of conversations. It could keep going forever, but unfortunately, Troy, we yeah. need to wrap yeah. it up right here. Thank you, Troy Cross, so much for being with us. Uh, Sheila Warren, my, my co-host, thanks as always. And thank you to all of you for listening once again to Money Reimagined. You can subscribe to us on the Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Keep reading Coindesk.com for articles about everything that's happening in this space, not just this environmental Bitcoin conversation, but everything else as well. And of course, you know, looking back at the next month on 10 years of, of Coindesk and crypto history. Thank you. Bye for now. You've been listening to Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. The show has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Our executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Our theme song is Aida by Neon Beach. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.